Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Legends of Retail podcast. My guest today is none other than Dave Cheesewright. Dave was the CEO of Walmart International from 2013 to 2018. This episode that we recorded is an MBA of sorts for people who want to understand how to succeed at running a Fortune 100 company. In this episode, we talk about Dave's approach to work-life balance, the real job of an executive, and how he thought about setting Walmart International strategy. We also talk about Flipkart and Jet.com, and Dave shines a light on his decision-making process around Walmart's M&A activity while he was there. This was a fun episode to record. Dave was very generous with his time, and I do hope you enjoy. Thank you. Dave, thanks for joining. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I wanted to just quickly start with a question to break the ice here, which is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Well, breakfast, I had some fiber one and some muesli and a smoothie. How healthy am I? Very healthy. That sounds great. And so now that we're kind of rolling here, I admittedly asked a mutual connection of ours, your son and my close friend, Jack, for a couple of questions. And he wanted me to ask about your experiences in your early days about being an athlete. He said, quote, my dad was an elite runner and rugby player back in the day. And so I'd love to ask you, were there any lessons you learned from sport early on in life that you later applied to business? Oh, I think definitely. I mean, a sport has been often used as an analogy uh, for the workplace. As you said, I did a mixture of individual sports and team sports. And uh, I think particularly there are lots of leadership lessons around uh, sport and particularly with retail. I mean, it's interesting on reflection. I think retail is a good place for sports people. It's very measurable. You wake up every morning. The first thing you see is results, the sales numbers from yesterday. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Still have to get out and play the next day. You know, retail is a mixture of team and individual. You know, there's times when you have to work hard yourself. There's a lot of times, given the number of people involved, that you have to get things done through other people. You have to rely on them. You have to trust them to do their job uh, better than you could ever do, which, which would be true of lots of sports. And I think the other thing is there's a lot of satisfaction, particularly in team games and sports, around you know, good performances. Sometimes they may not necessarily be winning, but, but a team working together and achieving something, I think, is more fulfilling than simply doing things on your own. So, yeah, multiple lessons from sport that I've carried through into, into leadership and life in general. And if I just, you know, kind of double click on that, uh, running is a very individual sport where you're competing against yourself and rugby inherently is a team sport. Would you say that you found more enjoyment and fulfillment out of team sports than individual sports? Uh, not necessarily. I, I think, you know, whatever you do gives you different things and, you know, kind of keeping the curiosity to take the best out of whatever it is you're doing is really important in life. So, you know, running was was very quiet space for me. You know, I used to be a long distance runner. I'm, I'm no sprinter. And, you know, going for a run, particularly if it was in the mountains for an hour or so or, or longer, was just a good time to just switch everything off, forget about what's going on, maybe think about some things, but, but have some time for yourself. You know, team sports, on the other hand, were just great social. And rugby was a fabulous social sport. A lot of my friends to this day are, are guys that I played with during that era. All of those great things about being a team sport. And you know, rugby was a great sport where you played hard and then you uh, partied hard afterwards. And that's a good combination. Love the work hard, play hard ethos. 
I want to go a little bit deeper into that because in a talk, you mentioned that you wanted to retire without ever having ever missed a holiday. And when I surfaced that quote to Jack, he mentioned that you were exceptional at being present at home and balancing work despite the obligations of running a Fortune 100 company. So I'm very curious about that. I think a lot of executives actually struggle with this. I do myself. How do you think about setting boundaries at work? What are some practices that you put in place to ensure that you were present with your family when you weren't at work and you were home for holidays and so on? That's a great question. I mean, I think I love the quote which said that work-life balance is a flawed concept. There's life and the components of life of which work is one. And I, I've always believed in that. I think the other thing before we get onto boundaries is, is to recognize that the work-life balance can be lots of different things. I think some people simplify it as, you know, you have to work less hard. But I think you go through stages of your life where it can mean completely different things. That There are stages of my life where, you know, I might have been in a job that I wasn't necessarily great at. And I had to work really hard to be successful. And that was what that's what mattered to me at that time. There are other times where I had young kids and I wanted to not miss that. And therefore, that became important. So I think creating an environment of work-life balance is about giving people permission to do whatever they want. And that may be to work very hard. It may be to pick up the kids every day from school. It, you know, it can be whatever it is. I think for us, you know, probably two things looking back. I think the first point is to be present. It's incredibly easy, you know, after a long day at work to get home and you get to the door and the kids come running up when they're, when they're a young age, obviously not Jack these days, but, um, you know, they come running up and you kind of say, oh God, give us, just, just let me have a cup of tea and then we'll, then we'll play. And I think, uh, I remember a, um, a great uh, business coach in, in Europe once said, you have to think of yourself as super dad. And that moment when you open the door and he, he used to recommend you sit in the car, put some music on, psych yourself up to be super dad. So when you walk in the door, you have boundless energy for your kids. And he said, the great thing about it is, is particularly when they're young, you know, after 40 seconds or so, they've had the oh, dad's home. That's really exciting. And they want to go back and play with their toys. And then you can have your cup of tea. So I think, you know, be present and be involved in whatever it is you're doing would be the first thing. And then I think the second thing is boundaries are good, but you, you have to agree them with the rest of the family. And, you know, mine changed over the years with the different jobs, but we would always, with Claire and I in particular, would set a few things in stone. So you know, for me, a lot of the time it was, I'll be working hard during the week, but the weekends are for the family. And I want you to hold me accountable for that. Dinners are really important. So I'll be home for a dinner twice a week. Hold me accountable for that. And as you say, I always wanted to retire having not missed a day's holiday because holidays for the family and never been had, never had a day off sick actually was the other bit. Now I failed on the sickness one. I had two days off, I think in my working life with a bad back having decided I'd learn to play ice hockey. So obviously poor judgment there. But I think not just setting boundaries, but you know, having the family hold you accountable for them is a really good, good way of looking at things. I love that. And especially love how you are getting buy-in from your family around the boundaries that you ultimately want to set. And you know, basically ensuring that you can be present in those moments that you dedicate towards family time. Otherwise, it's wasted, right? You could be doing something better with your time or if your mind is preoccupied. Um, you know, it's it, people will notice that, I think, particularly family members. So I love that insight. This dovetails into a question that I had around authenticity. It's very important to be authentic at home. It's much easier to be authentic at home. 
But you've also mentioned in our research that authenticity is an important aspect of leadership. And I'm curious about some life experiences or insights that allowed you to discover your authentic self and be sort of who you are, you know, at home, the same person you are in business. So in, you know, researching your background, Dave, we discovered uh, this insight that you've mentioned in a previous talk, which is that an important aspect of leadership is to be authentic. And so I'm curious how you've discovered how to be your authentic self in business in particular. It's much easier to be who you are at home, um, but in a business setting, I think leaders often struggle with this. So were there any life experiences that allowed you to discover your authentic self and be comfortable being who you are uh, in the context of business? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I would say authenticity is probably the, the word that stands out amongst really good leaders more than anything else. And I think there's two reasons for that. Um, the first is about energy. I mean, big executive roles require a lot of work. They require a lot of your energy. And if you're not being your authentic self, it's tiring. I mean, it's really hard to be someone you're not. So trying to find somewhere where you can feel at home is really important. Now, I'd love to tell you intentionally that I ended up trying to pick a career company that allowed me to be myself. You know, I think I was lucky. But in hindsight, we've already talked a bit about how I think retail is a very good industry for sports people, you know, measurable, mixture of team and individual, very practical and down to a not at all esoteric. But then I think, you know, if I think back to the company and the values of the companies I've worked with, whether it's Mars or Walmart, which is where I spent most of my working life, they felt very comfortable for me. And certainly wherever I went in Walmart world, it wouldn't matter on the cultural differences, but I felt there were people who had similar core values to me. And therefore you didn't, you know, you found nothing that jarred. So I think, you know, the first point is it allows you to, you know, use the best of your energy. I think the second point then is it's the more senior you get, the more visible you are. Uh, And it is incredible how people watch you and you'll be found out, you know, you can't be someone you're not. So I think it's more a case of being thoughtful about picking, you know, an industry, a career, and particularly a company whose values resonate with you that allows you to be yourself than it is, you know, trying to change, you can't change your authentic self. It is what it is. And then I guess the other part of it is, I think if you have an element of curiosity about who you are, you know, I would say it took me a long time to properly understand who I am. And, you know, certainly every year of my working life, I'd do some sort of, you know, whether it's a Berkman or, or some other personality assessment, you know, I'd really be passionate about getting 360 feedback and hear what people said about me and try and understand, well, why, why do I work well with that person, not the other person? So I think learning about yourself is really important in terms of being authentic because you, you kind of have to be authentic and self-aware. I mean, authenticity is not an excuse to be an idiot or to be rude because whoever you are will have different impacts on different people. You need to understand that and you do need to accommodate that from time to time. But it's really about energy and consistency with people, I think, are the main reasons to be authentic. That makes sense. It sounds like awareness is a precursor to authenticity and that if one is able to cultivate this sense of awareness, they can, without maybe knowing who they are deep down or with very limited information around their values, they can begin to feel physiologically when a situation may not be right for them 
or when they're working with people who may not be aligned to their core values, even if those core values aren't legible to the individual. So it sounds like awareness is actually the precursor to authenticity. And as you develop that, you're able to then be confident in your own skin, regardless of the context, whether it's home or business. Yeah, uh, you know, I'd agree with that. And I think it's amazing. I mean, you, you know, a lot of companies will say we're a values-orientated company. And there's a continuum for how true that actually is. I mean, there are, there are plenty of companies who mean well, but the statements just are a piece of paper on a wall that just sits there and someone reinvents every five years. There are others who, you know, the majority of the organization knows what they are and can explain them reasonably well. I think that curiosity is about making sure it, that they form part of what you do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I always felt that particularly with difficult decisions, you know, coming back to a set of personal or company guidelines as a route map for how you make those decisions is really important. And you know, we would talk about values, certainly within Walmart, that your job is not just to be a leader. I mean, people always say, you know, what's your role in the values? Well, I, you know, I have to demonstrate the values and you know, act in accordance with the values. We would also say that your role is to be a student and a teacher, that every day you should be thinking, okay, this is a difficult decision. How, how would the values guide me through this? Do they work for this or, or do they jar? In which, and if they jar, what's wrong with them? And then once you've learned those things, go teach someone else on it. So, you know, so, so we would talk about those words on the wall literally every week and, and what they mean and how they, how they can be interpreted and how they can be a guide map. So, yeah, I think that curiosity is really, really important. I have a sort of a, a question on not only how you operationalize values, that makes a lot of sense to me, and they become crystal clear when you are making a difficult decision where perhaps the easy decision is to compromise on values. My question is actually around how do you screen for core values and fit on core values for potential hires that you're looking to make and new employees that you'd like to bring on into the organization? Do you have any litmus tests that you used to screen for compatibility in core values? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's amazing how many people who are responsible for interviewing executives, when you say to them, how do you know this personal fit? They don't have a good answer. I stumbled on ours at Walmart. And you know, when I, I came to Canada in 2008 to run Walmart Canada, it was a very male-dominated, hierarchical organization. And you know, when I went around and talked to executives from other companies, they all said, oh, I've never joined there, don't like the culture. And so to try and break that down, one of the things we did was I got a lot of the executives they would take it in turns at our weekly meeting to stand up. And we had a session called Getting to Know You. And the aim was, you know, bring in a few of those embarrassing photographs of yourself when you were a kid and talk a bit about how you grew up and what made you the person you are. And what was fascinating, we ended up, I think we did about 80 in the end. And it was amazing how consistent those stories were. You know, they, not everybody had all of these, but you would hear about people coming from humble backgrounds, not much money you know, learn about the importance of saving for a better life early on. You would hear about the importance of relationships, you know, often family, but could be a teacher or some other mentor in shaping their lives. You would hear about a sense of right and wrong, you know, either taught by their parents or for whatever reason, but quite a strong sense of justice. And you would also hear competitiveness, you know, sometimes sport, sometimes academic, sometimes music, but competitiveness. And so, you know, my interview question for executives was, you know, when you cast your mind back before 18, before leaving school, and share with me a couple of experiences or people that made you the person you are. And if they played back a couple of those things, 
uh, it was a pretty good track record that they would like Walmart and Walmart would like them. So I think the point is, you know, that's one formula that works. The point is you should be, you know, that student, that curious side, you should make it your mission to find out how do you screen for it? What is an effective way of screening for it and constantly look to adapt that. I love that. And early experiences in life shape not just our positive attributes and values as people, but they also shape perhaps even our dark sides and the qualities that we're trying to work on within ourselves. And so you once said, quote, if you stop trying to get a perfect answer and work on the premise that anything you do improves things is worth doing, then life gets a lot easier. In other words, done is better than perfect. I'm a perfectionist myself, and I'm curious if that's something you've struggled with throughout your life, and if so, how you've perhaps combated that. Uh, I can't honestly tell you I've struggled with being a perfectionist, no. <laughs> I mean, some of that is that that suits the way I think. I mean, I've always been an advocate of a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. You know, get on and do things. Or the the concept of, you know, ready, fire, aim, rather than any other way around. That you never know what the future brings. And, you know, that perfectionist can tend to want to know every answer to every question, which they won't do. And it's only when you get moving do you start to see what's going on? I think equally, you know, I always loved on, you know, big problems, just taking a rough, you know, a first cut at it and saying, what comes to mind first? And then I would always have kind of a, you know, collection of people whose opinions I trusted. And sometimes they varied by topic, but I would then start to bounce my thoughts off. And you'd learn very, two things that always happened when you did that. Almost always you'd get some feedback that made you think, hmm, okay, I'm a little bit off here, but if I corrected to there, that would improve things. So you'd always have some improvements. You also got ownership because people tend not to want to do that because they're worried that if they don't have the fully formed right answer and you end up going somewhere else, people will feel you're indecisive or you're not, you not, don't always know the answer. In my experiences, people, you have much better buy-in if you involve people earlier. If they knew that your idea was stupid and they told you so, that they felt good about that. Not, not making you feel stupid, but in being smart and being to help provide the solution as long as you build it in. So I think you have to, again, you have to have two things. I, I think there is absolute value in moving quickly in most things because you can guarantee that other people around you will be moving quickly. I think there's value in not having totally finished solutions because almost always the best solutions are incrementally developed rather than an aha moment. There are always exceptions. And I think there's incredibly value in keeping that kind of curiosity and involving others as you form the right ideas for their buy-in. And obviously, it always makes the plan better than one you could have come up with on your own. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's, it goes against our human tendencies to want consensus and to crave validation when there is some amount of conflict that needs to be had or debate and disagreement that needs to be had between people in order to seek truth. And this is very uncomfortable for people in my experience. And at Convictional, we screen for this in our hiring process. We want people who will openly debate, overcome that fear of being judged or disliked for having conflict about a given topic. And I'm curious if this is something that you developed within your executive team at Walmart and how you went about that? Or is it just something that you hire for people who are not conflict avoidant, but people who can lean into it in order to get great ideas out of the debate? That's a really interesting question. I think certainly there are people who are 
different thinkers and they can add to a team. But I think you know, one of the things about strategy is that there is elements of it you can learn. And, and I've, I always count myself very lucky that I spent my first 10 years at Mars, which had a phenomenal graduate scheme. And they taught you lots of the fundamentals of strategy. And one of them was um, playing, playing devil's advocate. We had in-house coaching where you know you were taught that it was your responsibility if an argument was one side to take a differing view, even if you didn't agree with it, because that would stimulate debate and debate made for better decision-making. Now, that's fine, but you have to have teams be aware of that. And I, I remember when I first started at Walmart, you know, I'd, I'd be in meetings and the argument would be very one-sided and I'd take an opposite view and someone would come up to me at the end and say, Dad, I didn't think you thought that, Dave. And you'd have to explain, no, I didn't actually, but I just thought, thought it'd be a better argument. So the team have to understand those techniques. But the debate does give, on some occasions, a better answers. Now, the caveat I'd say to that is another lesson on strategy was a fellow who worked at Asda in the UK. He was a McKinsey consultant, and he came in to help us do some strategy. And it was a really interesting exercise he did. He, we brainstormed out a number of statements about where we wanted to take the business. And then he asked us to each vote on them, you know, where one was we violently disagree or what, 10 was we violently agree or the other way around. I can't remember which way the scale went. And we didn't get the feedback, but we came together for the next session and he picked a topic and it was something to do with pricing. And he said, right, we're going to get in the numbers later, but let's debate this topic. And we had, for an hour, we had the most vociferous debate you could imagine on this topic. And he went on to share the numbers and all of us were eight or more out of 10. In other words, we all agreed on that topic. And he used it to make the point that you also have to be selective where you debate. If you primarily agree, you're intelligent people, you can always have a debate on things. But you should spend your time on two things. One is, I mean, the ones where you all agree, just leave it and get on with it. Pick it. You can nuance it as you go forward. Where most of you agree and there's an outlier, let the outlier say, say their piece. And they'll be a far more constructive participant if they've at least been allowed to say why they have a different opinion. Because quite often it'll be a tactical vote anyway. And then where you spend your time is where the group is genuinely split. And, you know, one group are at one end and one group. And so I think debate is good, you know, learning some of the techniques and having people in there who are different, but have the debates selectively because there are too many management teams who spend their entire life debating things that actually they already agree on and not on the things where they genuinely have a difference of opinion that they need to align. I love that. Having a devil's advocate in strategic decision-making seems like a excellent tool and and very much a easily applicable tool for dealing with uncertainty and there's also this element of focus and picking your battles and moving on where there's consensus but really choosing what's worth to spend time debating and digging deep into those decisions something that inspired me when we first met was something you said where you mentioned that your CEO, as CEO of Walmart International, your job was to make three big decisions per year. And I might be off on the number there, but I think it was three to five decisions per year. What advice would you give to an ambitious executive on selecting and making those key decisions? I think there's probably a step before that, which is understanding. You know, a lot of people go into a job and don't really understand what the job is. And one level that can be you've been doing a fairly operational job, you've been promoted to the manager, and you still think the job is being the best operator, and therefore you never really delegate or get the best out of your team. I think the Walmart International job was fascinating in that, I mean, it's a very different business. It's big, $150 billion of sales a year. 
but spread over 50 businesses in 28 different countries. And so, you know, although I'd grown up in packaged goods and retail, and I could I could probably have a coherent conversation on supply chain or buying or marketing or any of the other areas, I was never going to be there long enough to have an impact on the day-to-day running of those businesses. So early on, you know, one of the, ch- the biggest challenge in the job was deciding what you thought the job actually was. And, you know, in that context, it was three things. It was agreeing a broad strategy for the business that was you know, had that nice balance of it was specific enough that it guided people, but it was broad enough that it could stand the test of time and allow people flexibility within it. It was hiring great leaders who could get on and execute that. And then thirdly, it was the point you made that, you know, there were some pretty big decisions that would come up that you wouldn't be able to debate to a conclusion and ultimately needed someone to decide. And the CEO is where the buck stops. So you had to make some pretty big decisions about typically an international, which markets were you in and which ones should you stay in or which ones should you enter? And so a lot of, lot of acquisition work. So I think the answer to the question is, you know, understand really what the job is. Where can you, as the leader in that job, add the most value? And then once you've found the area that has the most value, prioritizing the things that make the biggest difference. So I guess the nub of the answer is really about always be rigorously prioritizing. You know, which areas can you add? Then what are the key topics that can add the most value? Because the danger for all of us is we all grew up doing operational jobs and we all end up, you know, it's that classic, you end up in a job where you're not doing what you were, what got you there. And unless you continually evaluate what the job's all about, you can end up spending a lot of time doing the wrong things. I think there's this sort of cliche in strategy where one should focus on their strengths and not their weaknesses. And I have my own perspective on this, but when you define the job, there might be some bullet points within that job description that actually may overlap with your weaknesses. What do you do in those circumstances where you need to get something done, but you may actually not be the best person to do it? There's a lot of content in there. I think, you know, strengths and weaknesses, I would be in the camp of you get more out of people by leveraging their strengths than criticizing them for their weaknesses. But I would also always hire people who had that sense of curiosity and lifelong learning that they did not ignore their weaknesses. They weren't trying to fix them, but they, they got them to the stage where they weren't a disability for them. So you have to be good enough at those things. So, And most of that, to be honest, is about awareness because for the majority of people, their weaknesses are an inverse of their strengths. So they're always going to be there. I think you just have to know what they are. So if you're, if like me, you like solving you know, big complex problems and your energy levels go down once you think you know the solution, I have to have people around me who can take the ball and then run with it in execution. So I think generally that's the way you look at things. Then I think in terms of how you build the business, it's really important not to forget that talent is three-dimensional. And I mean, the first dimension is obvious, which is, you know, is I guess the talent part of talent. You know, is this executive, you know, smart, strategic, good experience, good skills? The other two are the ones people mostly forget, which is you can take a brilliant executive and put him in the wrong job or the right job at the wrong time, and they'll fail. So I found increasingly through my career, talent selection was less about who was the best candidate. It was more about who was the right candidate at the right time. So you know, starting to build models in your head around what stage is this business at? Is it an early stage where I need innovation 
and alignment, if you want to use the S curve, you know, where alignment is you're just running super fast in this, you know, really roughly in the same direction, but you're not dotting I's and crossing T's. Is it in a harvesting phase where strategy is set, I want someone to, you know, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, extract, or is it in a decline stage where it needs turning around? Very different type of people needed for those. So second I mentioned is horses for courses, right time, right job for people. And then the third one is, is the one that's least remembered, which is environment, that you could take the right executive and put him in the right job at the right time, and he can fail if the environment is not supportive to him. So back to the cultural fit. You know, he may be phenomenally skilled at the job. He may be an innovator when you need an innovator. But if the company culture jars with him, he won't be successful. So how often do you hear people talk at work around you know, I, I thought this person was an average performer. And then I got talking to them about what they do at home. And they, they do extraordinary things in the community and they do this and that. I wish that person came to work. I mean, I always think that's a great lesson for everybody in a business, particularly retail, where you have a, a large number of um, employees, is if you could get every single person to be the best person they could be for every hour they're at work, I mean, boy, you wouldn't need to do any leading. You could just let them loose and you deliver every plan you ever wanted. And it, it's a bit to do with, the uh, last model I'll share on this one is, um, I love the, loved the model about how, you, how to get things done or why things don't get done, which is can do, choose to do, allowed to do. Can do is about capability. Can the person do the job you're asking to do? Have they been trained? Have they got the skills, experience? Choose to do is about motivation, the incentives in the right place. Allowed to do is about barriers. So, does this person not have the right resources? Um, have you set them an objective where there's someone else who's got a conflicting objective that's stopping them? And the reason that's a great model is most leaders default to one and two. If it's not working, uh, send them on a training program or carrot and stick motivation. And in my experience, 90% of the time things aren't happening. It's to do with the leader not setting the right environment. They haven't given the right resources. They haven't managed objectives so there's no conflicts in there. They haven't been clear enough about the objectives. And it's the leader's responsibility. It's often the team are failing, not because of their ability, but because of the leader's ability. So it's a great model to kind of turn things back on yourself and make sure you've done your part, the leader, to create the environment to let people succeed. The three-part framework you shared, I guess there was a couple of them in there, but specifically the one on creating the right environment and resourcing problems properly is, I think, it makes a lot of sense to me in the context of leaders often don't have all of the answers. And so how do they create the conditions and environment such that teams can embrace uncertainty and perhaps apply mental models to solve those problems? And one of those resources that I think is becoming increasingly common inside of organizations is executive coaching. And I'm curious how you utilized uh, executive coaching throughout your career and was that a resource that you encouraged among the teams that you worked with? Well, I have a confession here to make. My wife is an executive coach and has been for 20 years. So I'm her unfinished work in progress. So I have, although I don't realize it most of the time, I'm permanently being coached at home. No, seriously, I mean, I, I think executive coaching is unbelievably important, you know, and particularly if you can find a good coach who, there's, there's, there's lots of different types of coaching. I think a lot of people default to, um, if you like technical or advisory coaches. So, you know, that might be someone like me for someone who's in a senior retail position and they can ask me probably questions about most bits of retail and I'd have an opinion on it. it might be right, might be wrong, but I'd have an opinion. I think it's the behavioral ones that really add the value. 
Yeah, and the ones who are sector diagnostic, sector agnostic, but who are experts in understanding and helping you understand who you are, which helps with a lot of the things we've talked around authenticity, and most importantly, what impact that will have on other people. And you know, there's a variety of tools that those people use, but I think that journey of understanding yourself better, and therefore understanding what impact your style can have on different styles, which you will need in your team. You can't have everybody like you, obviously. And how you get the best out of that and how they get the best out of you, because it is a two-way conversation, is what behavioral coaching, I think, can bring. And I would, it's, again, another standard interview question. I am i wouldn't say I would never, but I'd be pretty loathed to hire any executive who didn't, who wasn't able to talk about what they've learned through executive coaching, because I just find it hard to imagine that a senior executive could be the finished article unless he's got someone helping them with their, the behavioral side of their leadership skills. In thinking about operationalizing behavior and performance inside of organizations, one thing that coaching has taught me is that with every person that you work with, there's basically an x-axis and a y-axis, and your goal is to find the equilibrium of these two lines. And so on the x-axis, you have basically objective performance, right? So what are our quarterly goals? What are our our annual targets? And then on the y-axis, you have the human need to provide emotional support to your people and to take care of them. And for every person, the where those two lines intersect looks different. And so one thing that's been helpful for my coaching is to look at the people I work with and determine where do you fall in this plot? Like where are the lines going to intersect for you? And then how can I tailor my communication and my style of leadership to what your needs are as a human so that we can you know, get the results that we want and you feel good about it and you're organically bought in. And so I think that's been one of the frameworks that's been really helpful for me. I agree. And I'd call that the willingly and well framework. Willingly is about the um, emotional intelligence and well is about performance and process. And I think as well as individuals, it's interesting. I think companies should understand what sort of organization they are. And if I go back to UK days, Asda was a willingly business. You know, our whole attitude is we, we hire for attitude, we train for skill. We want people who can interact with customers. We can teach them how to put boxes on shelves. Tesco's, on the other hand, was a well business. Um, they were rigorous at process and auto, you know, automation and didn't worry too much about the personality. And it's interesting that generally, whichever one you are, you kind of aspire to be the other. So we would always look at Tesco's performance and say, God, if we could just be as disciplined as them, we'd be great. And they would look at us and say, if we had a bit more personality. I think sometimes you just need to decide who you want to be and just align everything behind it. And I always remember, you know, my favorite was Tesco's would clearly want to try and put a bit of personality in their business from time to time. And the register was always the place where these things mattered. So you, you could get as to where, you know, the lineups would be 10 deep at the checkout and the checkout operator is, is merrily engaging in a chat about how are your kids and isn't it a lovely day and so on. And that person just wants to get out of there. They've been queued up for ages. Tesco's, I used to do this now and again, but you, you could go through the express checkout with one carton of orange juice and you, you'd put it on the uh, scanner and the, the lady would not look at you and would say, do you need some help with your bag packing, sir? And you say, no, I kind of think I got that. And it was just an example of it. If, you, if you're not authentic to your organization, that checkout operator was probably very efficient, but didn't have the personality and or the EQ to recognize that I really don't need help with the bag packing for one carton of orange juice. But equally, you know, as to have the other downside. So I think, you know, pick a route, be authentic to it. That makes total sense. And 
we've managed to spend quite a bit of time talking about leadership and self-awareness, and we haven't at all touched upon retail or the future of retail. And so I would love to, you know, slowly make our way in that direction uh, before we cap off the conversation, Dave. And one of the questions that I had is, you know, Walmart had been through a number of acquisitions, acquiring companies or investing in companies while you were there. And as a you know business leader, I'm curious about how you evaluated potential opportunities to acquire companies in order to further the goals of, the, of your business. And so were there any sort of key lessons that you learned around acquisitions uh, while working at Walmart? You know, I think the biggest learning was to be crystal clear of your overall strategy before you start thinking about acquisitions. So I would argue that certainly in the early days of Walmart International, the kind of strategy was, okay, we've set up an international division. You know, when it started, it was primarily Mexico. And it was almost like the strategy was, well, let's look at areas of the world we're not, try and find a business that's for sale that looks a bit like us, and then buy it and then work out how to integrate it. And Walmart typically owned everything. And you know, certainly when I took over international, the first thing we did was quite a thorough review of whether that was still the right strategy. And you know, the conclusions we came to were, you know, the US business had had four or five years of pretty poor performance. And what you realize is however important you think international is, it does not move the needle on the US stock price. Like the US, you know, 0.1% increase in comp in the US stores business will blow anything I'd ever do in international out the water. So we were going to be a business that was investing in strengthening the US business for the foreseeable future. Ecom was already really important and becoming increasingly more important. So we were going to be investing in the American e-commerce business. And therefore, international was not going to get investment. So we ended up doing a lot of work on the portfolio and concluding that, you know, that we had three priorities. Number one was anything that makes the US business better had to be the biggest priority. So Canada and Mexico were two very profitable businesses adjacent to the US. Um, actually, a lot of common product, common sourcing, but completely unintegrated. So strategy one, start thinking about a strong North American core and how those businesses can leverage off each other to strengthen the US business. Then two, international was really about growth. You know, North America was slowing growth. Other markets were growing faster. But when you do the maths, although there's big markets out there, India and China is all that really matters in terms of growth. So priority two then was to say, okay, let's take a long, hard look at our businesses in China and in India. India was very small. China was losing money. Um, and let's present the board with a, you know, absolute, if you want to be successful in these countries, this is what it would take. And so that involved us in the end, closing a lot of stores in China, uh, selling our econ business, which was, I think, the fourth largest at the time, Yehaudian, into uh, Jingdong. So quite big for Walmart to not be owning everything, but the thinking that there's no point being an e-com if you're not in the most, one of the most successful ecosystems. So we were going to be in someone else's ecosystem and working out how we added value within it. Really switching the priority from Walmart stores to Sam's Club, which was much more relevant for the Chinese consumer. And then in India, we had you know, 20 stores. It was meaningless in the size of India. And you know the analysis there said, you know, with, with all the various regulation in India, you're not going to build a, a national store chain to compete with the likes of Reliance. So it's going to be e-commerce. And you know Amazon is one who obviously is not an acquisition, and Flipkart's the other. And then with the rest of the portfolio, we basically went through and said, look, it's either a strong business that's going to generate reliable cash for the future, keep, 
or it's a it's a compromised business where a merger or a, or partnership could make it strong, do something, or it's not and sell it. So Argentina sold, Brazil sold. Asda in the UK, we tried to merge with Sainsbury's regulator, didn't like that and eventually sold that. And so I think the acquisitions fell out of what the strategy was. I guess the other point I'd make on this is it's also worth thinking about, you know, the, so the Flipkart one was fairly obvious. If you wanted to be big in India and you believed e-commerce was the future and you couldn't get into physical, there was only one target. It's just a question of how much you pay and how you then make it work. I think if you look at US e-commerce, so the acquisition of Jet's an interesting one because people would look at that and say, hold on, you paid a lot of money, $3.3 billion for a business that you closed down three years later. And I think what you miss there is um, that's probably the largest acquihar in the, in, <laughs> that's ever been, that Mark Laurie and his entire team, who'd built Quidzy first, quizzydiapers.com, sold to Amazon, and then Jet from scratch. It wasn't about Jet. It was about what that group could do to Walmart's e-commerce business. And if you look at the condition that whole Walmart online business was in at the end of Mark's four and a half years, I think you would quite quickly come to the conclusion it was worth every penny. Mark is certainly a legend and someone I look up to in the world of e-commerce in particular. And I believe he has this framework for making decisions called VCP, uh, vision, capital, and people. And that if you just have the right vision, the amount of capital needed to execute on it, and you assemble the right people together, value will be created. And I think that that simplicity is just so beautiful. Yeah. And he's one of these rare people that he... He's, I would argue he's a commercial entrepreneur first who knows enough about to deliver the commercial objectives through tech. He's, he's, he's a rare mix that he's not an out-and-out tech guy. Um, he knows enough about it, but he's got an instinct for you know, what customers want and how to make money from it. Well, in closing up our conversation, Dave, we are going to move to our rapid fire round. And how it works is I'm going to give you a quick question and you'll give me your immediate thoughts in about one to two sentences, or even one word. So are you ready to go? Sure, far away. Awesome. The most exciting opportunity in retail post-COVID? I think application of artificial intelligence. Retail is the classic area where, whether it's operations or customers, there's an infinite amount of work and a finite amount of resource. And that is where AI, in combination with humans, I think can make dramatic strides forward. We're going to have to do a part two interview just on that topic alone, I think. A brand you love and why? It would be Rafa. So if I must, I love cycling. Rafa is one of the largest clothing brands in the world. Through a lot of serendipity, I end up working for my favorite brand. So uh, I just love that combination of a brand that's not just about product, although the product's incredibly good, but it's also about community and content. We, we do a lot of media work as well. So I absolutely love that brand. Incredible loyalty. That's amazing. Most important lesson in fatherhood? I think prioritize. You know, you can't do everything. Uh, as I say, there's, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's just life. And, and fatherhood is an incredibly important part of that. So I think, you know, be present when you're around and prioritize it because it's, it, you know, they grow up pretty quick. Yes. Listen to music in the driveway to shift from work to home and go be super dad. And lastly, Dave, what is the kindest thing someone has done for you? Ooh. I'll tell you a little story. It's going to be longer than two cents, but I'll tell you a little story. My wife and I decided that on our 30th wedding anniversary, we would renew our vows. And we 
mainly as an excuse for a big party, and particularly for Claire's mum, who was in the last years of her life, or last months of her life, actually, it turned out. And uh, in Claire's vows, she talked about it's the little things that are the big things. And I think she's absolutely right. So it's really hard to think of one amazingly kind thing, but what I like in my life are people who are not always kind, but who are continuously making small acts of random kindness. Yeah, and, and I think it's when you look at, it's funny because when she said that, it always makes you reflect. And I realized that lots of my friends and people that I've liked at work, you know, they're, they're, if you look for the commonality, it's not the only one, but they were just people who were kind. You know, they would always have time for you. You know, when people who you knew throughout your career, even when you were relatively junior, they'd have time to say hello to you. It might be as simple as that. Or they'd notice that you're having a bad day or they'd, you know, remember it was your birthday or, or whatever it was. I think it's those lots of small little things that are actually the big things. I love that. The small things are the big things. What a great note to end on. Dave, this has been an incredible conversation. I think our chat today, my hope is that it is a concentrated MBA for people who want to be better leaders and decision makers in business and at home. And so I'm so grateful for you taking the time to chat with us today and all the best moving forward. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Some good, thoughtful questions. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of Legends of Retail. In this episode, I interviewed Dave Cheesewright, the former CEO of Walmart International. I find Dave to be a Jedi master when it comes to decision-making, executive management, and balancing work and family life. How did he do all of this while being so effective? The secrets are sprinkled throughout the episode, but one theme that emerged was the importance of self-awareness. It was continuously clear to me throughout the recording that Dave learned to cultivate self-awareness in order to make better decisions and to respond productively under pressure. We can't predict all of life's situations and scenarios and hardships, but we can start to learn a little bit more about who we are when we are faced with stressors. And so if you can read your own inner computer programming, you can begin to operate at a higher level. And I loved Dave's three-question framework for mobilizing talent. If you missed it in the interview, here's the framework. Can do, choose to do, allow to do. That translates to what can I do? What do I choose to do? And what am I allowed to do? What Dave shared is that most leaders try to fix number one and number two when there's a problem with their people at work. But oftentimes, people's uncertainty or lack of performance comes from not knowing what they are allowed to do. And this not knowing what I'm allowed to do question causes them to fail. So to make people successful, to mobilize talent, we need to do the following. We need to define the role. We need to define what's important. And we need to define the boundaries for decision-making. And if we do this, people are clear. And if you give them autonomy, they will make great decisions without you needing to be in the room. Lastly, I loved Dave's perspective on work-life balance and it being a flawed concept. Work is a part of life. It needs to be managed. 
Something that Dave said that I found to be interesting was that he asks his family to hold him accountable to his boundaries around work and life. He wanted to be home for X number of dinners per week. And so he asked his partner to hold him accountable to that standard. And if it's not already clear, it's impressive to me that Dave is someone who wants to be held accountable externally to the standards of the performance that he wants to operate at. Consider having your partner, your friends, your kids hold you accountable to the standards you have for being a better parent, a better friend, or a better partner. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find and listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions or just want to chat about this episode, feel free to shoot me an email. I'm at chris at convictional.com. That's chris at convictional.com. Thank you and see you next time.